on to the fifth episode of season three of Northern Spin. I'm Michael Taylor. By day, I'm the editor of the Northwest Business Desk. Here's my happy, clappy co-presenter, who's a little bit happier than the angsty version that we had last week, Chris McGuire. No, thank you very much, Michael, and thanks for uh, being there for me when I needed you last week. I'm the executive editor of uh, Business Cloud and Tech Blast, and the reason I'm so happy is because we're not doing one Northern Spin podcast this week. We're doing two. That's right. On Thursday, we'll be recording a special podcast about Wednesday's budget with the former civil servant Nicola Headlam, who is now the chief economist and head of the public sector at Red Flag Alert in Manchester. Absolutely. She was playing hardball, actually. She's doing a lot of stuff on Radio 5 Live, but she knows where her bread's buttered as well, and we've promised her the best coffee. Uh, now, I've made an executive decision, Michael, because I was going to start by saying that uh, we've got some lovely feedback from listeners, but I was going to reveal that an official, uh, that a northern, uh, our Northern Spin Twitter account, the official one, not our personal ones, has been blocked by a prominent northern politician. But then I thought to myself, you know what? Teesside Mayor Ben Blocker-Houchin doesn't deserve further discussion. Teesside with two S's as well. It's been Absolutely. pointed out to us, hasn't it, by someone up there? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But if a politician wants to block us... <laughs> Fair enough, you know. Yeah, anyway, let's focus on the people that matter. Our listeners, our viewers even. Some some people watch us on, some people watch us on YouTube, you know, all the time. Um, Justine McGuinn, who's uh, down there at MIPIM in Cannes this week, said it was a great listen and very informative. Was yeah. she listening to the same one that we were? Yeah, I think she did, actually. She's not getting as mixed up. I think she did, yeah. Right, I think right. it's helping with her sleep, I think. Okay. Chris Marsh um, uh, said he described Northern Spinners. Very impressive and makes me want to do one of my own. Do you realise how hard it is, Chris? Do you realise? He's too good looking for podcasts anyway. Yeah, he is, yeah. Great, great face for podcasts. And the acclaimed futurist, Tom Cheese, right? Crazy name, crazy guy, said it was spectacularly good. In fact, I take all that back, Tom. Top guy. Um, And a must listen. I mean, that's incredible. These are really, really serious good people they are and he can see into the future tom cheese right so uh, thanks very much to them yeah what's um, my lottery numbers next week absolutely yeah. absolutely anyway what are we talking about today well loads to get stuck into the name on everyone's lips gary lineker but it goes much deeper than that and uh, we're going to go much deeper we're going to be looking at the bbc the role of celebrities entering politics and whether the conservatives have reverted to being the nasty party again we're also going to be uh, looking at what's the point of pmqs will high speed two ever be built in our lifetime you know i'll be 69 by the time it comes to manchester apparently it's for the um, children though chris absolutely absolutely what can we expect from wednesday's budget we're going to have a little look at that ahead of our special podcast this week and can the uk's entry win eurovision which you've been playing today yeah, well, maybe they can. Now, we have our usual thank yous to do, starting with our producers, What Media, who do a really, really top job for us every single week. They're the kings of video content creation, and they've made their own headlines this week after entering into a partnership with Scandinavian influencer technology company, Inspire. Under the agreement, What Media will represent Inspire in the UK and offer their solutions to their network in Scandinavia and beyond. Great stuff. Well done, What Media. Yeah, well done. That's Inspire with a Z as well. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Oscar Technology and Lily Shippen, without whom this couldn't happen. As always, we talk about Lily Shippen in part two, but Oscar share our commitment to integrity. They're an award-winning recruitment consultancy delivering talent across tech, digital, life science, energy, and construction. I visited Oscar last week. They don't make great tea, but they make great appointments, and they've got some big news of their own as well. Um, so watch this space. We're really pleased to work with them because they've got integrity. Fantastic. 
Now, we're going to kick off, if you'll pardon the pun, by talking about Gary Lineker and the wider implications of what's been going on at the BBC. Why don't you give us, though, a quick recap? So I'll, 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 I'll start, if that's all right. So on Tuesday, Gary Lineker tweeted, good heavens, this is beyond awful, in response to a Twitter video featuring Home Secretary Cruella Braverman about the government's illegal migration bill. Now, when somebody takes issue with the host, someone then took issue with the host of the of Match of the Day, the blessed Gary, and he replied, this is no huge influx. We take far fewer refugees than other major European countries. This is just an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 1930s. And I'm out of order. So, Chris, sum up what happened next. Yeah, and uh, and it's back to you as well, Michael, because both myself and you turned down the opportunity to present Match of the Day on Saturday. Um, So anyway, back to serious stuff. So Gary Lineker's tweet, this prompted the inevitable government backlash, especially from the far right of the party, but Lineker said he would, uh, and I quote, continue to speak up for those poor souls that have no voice. Things came to a head on Friday when the BBC issued a ill-advised statement saying Lineker wouldn't be hosting Match Today on Saturday, saying he'd breached the BBC's social media guidelines. Now, that prompted a flurry of tweets. Pundits like Ian Wright and Alan Shearer said that they wouldn't be appearing on Match Today either. Fellow presenters, hosts, commentators all followed suit. I did try and watch a little bit of Saturday's Match Today, which lasted 20 minutes, was bereft of any commentary and conversation. You basically just heard crowd noises. Now, I think we need to break this down into four sections. First one, Gary Lineker. Second one, celebrities entering politics. Thirdly, the BBC. Fourthly, the role of the government. Over to you, Michael. Well, Chris, I'm going to push back a little bit with your attempt to drive this discussion in what I suppose is quite a predictable but understandable direction. Now, I'm going to say it right from the outset. I support Gary Lineker in every single possible way on this issue and and support him in every decision that he's made. But where is the discussion in all of this? about the Refugee and Asylum Bill, the moral discussion about refugees and what has happened to our basic humanity. Let me read out a couple of things from uh, international agencies. The UNHCR, which drives global bilateral relations around the whole issue of refugees and looking after them and the international protocol surrounding it. They said the effect of this bill in this form would be to deny protection to many asylum seekers in need of safety and protection and even deny them the opportunity to put forward their case. This would be a clear breach of the Refugee Convention and would undermine a long-standing humanitarian tradition of which the British people are rightly proud So the thing here, Chris, is most people fleeing war and persecution are unable to access what some people call the required system, you know, the normal ways of claiming asylum. Because we're an island nation, that makes it particularly difficult. And there are no safe and legal routes available to them. And there seems to be no appreciation about the, 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 the struggle that people are going through, fleeing war in Afghanistan, Syria, Sudan, Eritrea, Libya, and maybe under threat from crime gangs in Albania, which is, um, you know, although Albania is a modern European state and a member of NATO, it does have some profound social issues. So these people are fluid, fleeing genuine, genuine in fear of their lives. And yet, and yet, to listen to the willfully ignorant, to listen to Suella Braverman or Cruella Braverman, as I called her earlier, about these people, it barely, barely registers. The word she uses, invaders, migrants, they are 
And I, and I have to say, Gary Lineker was entirely right in saying that is the type of language that was used in Nazi Germany. Now, do you know what benefits asylum seekers receive in the UK? Um, no, I don't exactly, but obviously no, they're diddly from squat. Working. And yet the language seemed, always seems to be that they're being put up in five-star hotels or they're getting this and we're not getting that. Now, that's fed by people like Jonathan Gullis and Lee Anderson and Scott Benton and the, the thick right of the Tory party. Just It's their new Brexit. It's their new division issue. Cash support's available, and it currently set at £40.85 per person per week. £5.84 on food, sanitation and clothing. I couldn't live on that, and I'm sure you and your family couldn't as well. Chris, what we're seeing is a return to the nasty party. Now, I know you'll say it, nasty party, because you're from yeah. down south, but yeah. yeah, so come on. Well, am I wrong? You agree with 100% of what Gary Lineker says. I, I agree with 99%. Um, you know, and uh, so we're, we're pretty much in broadly in favour of what he said. I think the issue of boat crossings is really, really complicated. I don't think the government's latest attempt, the illegal migration bill, is going to fix it. We're recording this on Monday. It's due to be discussed in Parliament tomorrow, Tuesday. Now, you can see how talk of removing people arriving in the UK legally, either to Rwanda or another safe country, would appeal to to the right of the Conservative Party. I'm not sure it's going to hold up too much scrutiny in the courts. I mean, Suella Braverman herself said it's got a 50-50 chance of getting through. For the purpose of balance, and it's important to say this, I haven't heard anything from the Labour Party that convinces me they've got a solution either. But the Tories have scored an own goal of their own on demonising Lineker. I want to pick you up on something that you said as well, in terms of, I, I agree with you. I, I played cricket with a lad who um, who, who came on the back of a, a lorry um, <clears> from that the kid that was in the Andrew Flintoff yeah, That's right, yeah. yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah 16, 16 Adnan, years of age. Yeah, Adman. Uh, good player, actually, Adman. And and a good batsman and a good bowl. He played at Wigan and all sorts. But um, he came over. He was 16. I think his his father was killed. Um, I, I think the thing is, you make a distinction between somebody like Adnan and then there are there are gangs exploiting people. Uh, but you're criminalising Adnan. No, basically. I'm not criminalising him. What I'm saying, no, no, oh, you're this not. Bill is, you're not. This bill is. This bill criminalises him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This bill is. Um, and, what and do you do? What do you do if you're in those situations? Think of these people as human beings fleeing for their lives from conflict zones. Now, I know they'll say, oh, they're not. They're all coming over to this country to, I don't know, take away Lee Anderson's human rights or whatever. You know, I just... I think the point is, is that I look at Adnan and Adnan is a genuine case, but there are people in Albania who are exploiting the system. I mean, I read a statistic, don't know if it's true or not, between 30 and 40 percent of people making these legal crossings are, are, are males from Albania. Um, single males from Albania, you know, and that's the issue. The problem that the government have got, they've got this blanket approach to try and tackle the problem. I just sort of continuing the football analogy, which we started with Gary Lineker. I think the Tories fall into two sides in response to Lineker Gate. The first is made up of, you call them the thick right, um, you know, they're made up of the usual suspects, Lee 30p Anderson, Scott Benton, Andrea Jenkins, and Nadine Doris, who think attacking Lineker is the way to win the next general election. It's not. I think as a result of what they're doing, no one's talking about Rishi Sunak meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron on Friday and they've struck a deal. It's half a billion pounds to try and tackle the small boat crisis in the next uh, three or four years. But I thought we had no money. Yeah. Suddenly yeah. we do. You don't have money for nurses or railway workers, yeah? Or, yeah. Pe or, or people struggling in the care sector. But suddenly we've got 470 million pounds to address a problem that was entirely of the Tories' making over this last 13 years. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm glad that we have better relations with... <clears throat> with with France, you know, this is a long way. This is Rishi Sunak having a bromance with Emmanuel Macron is far more palatable than Liz Truss saying the jury's out on whether he's a friend or a foe. 
Yeah, that is a step forward, and I welcome that as a citizen of this country. And it's showing that at least Sunak is making some moves towards acting like a grown-up prime minister again, following the last two complete disasters. I want to pick you up on Gary Lineker, though. Yeah, you know, cool. you said you're 100 in favour of Gary Lineker and what he's done. I, I'm I'm moving towards 100 from 99. I think <clears throat> he's super intelligent. He's a thoughtful guy. I think he's reached a stage in his life when he's not going to stand by and say nothing about something that he feels strongly about. And you know, we need more people like that in in the in the public eye. He's tweeted about refugees before. This is something he's passionate about. He's welcomed refugees into his own home. Um, what he tweeted last week is factually correct. Now, if Lineker made a mistake, I'm not saying he did, I think it's nowhere near as grave as the outrageous misjudgment BBC chairman Richard Sharp made in helping facilitate an £800,000 loan to Boris Johnson. Just weeks before the then Prime Minister recommended him for his role, he should be nowhere near the BBC. And I think you'll find, we're recording this on Monday, I think he'll be out of a job sometime this week. As I mentioned, uh, the 1% of me that's not sure about Gary Lineker and what he did was the comparison to the Nazis in the 1930s. I don't think that's helpful. Yeah, and I think a number of people, including the front bench of the Labour Party, have distanced themselves from that 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 segment of his comments. Personally, I don't. Um, you know, we're all entitled to our views, aren't we? You know, there was a BBC TV series, um, you know, in the last 20 years called The Nazis, A Warning From History. If we don't learn the lessons of hate and division and where it leads to and pick these things up early, then we are destined and doomed to make the same mistakes. So he only said, he didn't say the government's policies are Nazi. He said that we are in danger of, of the language being redolent of that period. And I think he's right. And, but he knew the he knew the implication, and, and he, I'm not sure yeah. he knew how it would spiral out of control. But yeah. he knew. Well, let's not forget Boris Johnson evoked the Nazis when he described the the EU as a European superstate trying to dominate the continent, just as Hitler and Napoleon did. So you know, if these thick right knobheads want to try and come on and play the trump card, that somehow trump card. Yeah, you see what I did there. You did very very deftly done. Yeah. yeah. Um, then. You know, let's let's not let them get off the hook for some of their language as well. But what it does do is it shines a spotlight on the BBC generally. Yeah, it and does. And the influence of the government on the BBC and the power of sports stars and celebrities like Gary Lineker. We spoke in a recent pod about the growing influence of Carol Vorderman in politics. She's been very vocal in her support of Lineker over the weekend. Um, here's the thing, though. A lot of people are talking about the inconsistency that the BBC are approached to Lineker and the way they've treated other people like Lord Sugar, who I don't yeah. like, who called for people not to vote for Jamie Corbyn at the 2019 general election. Yeah, all letters that people have uh, shared where complaints about Alan Sugar, Andrew Neil, and Chris Packham have been rejected by the BBC on the grounds that they're expressing opinions as freelancers and not representing the BBC. So... You know, Chris Packham's quite outspoken about issues around wildlife and neuro neurodiversity. Um, people don't always share his views, but, you know, the BBC said he's entitled to do so and point out the fact he also works for National Geographic Channel and, and, and other broadcasters. But so does Gary Lineker. I don't see why he's being singled out. I think it's just become a big storm. And unfortunately, it is a culture war issue blown up by the Tory right to attack the BBC and every step since then, they've made a terrible, terrible error. Yeah, as I say, at the risk of repeating myself, I'm repeating, I'm agreeing with what you've said. The problem is, 
with the BBC is the influence of the government because obviously they're publicly funded. Gary Lineker, Carol Vorderman, just two high-profile celebrities who have spoken about um, things that they disagree with in politics. We mentioned, uh, well, I mentioned uh, Alan Sugar earlier. He, he used Twitter to accuse RMT union Mick Lynch of, quote, bringing the country and ordinary people to their knees over Christmas. That was a tweet in December last year. Um, let's, not, let's, let's not forget as well, you know, the BBC actively encouraged Lineker to make political statements about Qatar's human rights record uh, ahead of the World Cup as well. So celebrities entering politics isn't new. It's not unique to this country either. Taylor Swift, who my kids love, especially my oldest daughter, one of the highest profile politicians to tweet her opposition to the decision to overturn the Roe and Wade abortion bill in the US last year. I think what's also interesting is um, a lot of people think that former Southampton footballer Matt Letizia was binned off by Sky Sports because of his controversial views around COVID. If you look at Gary Neville, we've not mentioned for about six shows, his relationship with Sky. Now, he's a member, paid up member of the Labour Party, and he's increasingly using his platform to make uh, political statements. Not all the time, just occasionally. The difference is the BBC can't wield any influence on Sky like they do on the BBC because they're ma- because they're publicly funded. The government can't, you mean? No, no, so yeah, yeah. yeah, the, yeah. The, the, uh, sorry, yeah, the government can't wield any influence on the BBC because because they're publicly funded. Uh, if, we, if we look beyond... On that, um, we look beyond Gary Lineker. It's been a terrible week for the BBC. But do you think they've been mortally wounded by what's happened? I think they've been wounded, definitely. Whether it's mortal um, remains to be seen. They've, you know, they come through scandals before. You know, if you remember in the in the, uh, the 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 first decade of this century, the Director General resigned, the Chairman of the BBC resigned over them doubling down and defending Andrew Gilligan's statements on the Today programme about, you know, whether the the Labour Party government at the time under Blair and, and Alistair Campbell in particular compiled a dodgy dossier to justify war in Iraq um, and the death of David Kelly, all those things, you know, a, a horrible, horrendous time. The BBC does seem to come through these these scandals, but they do, at the moment, I think that they're particularly vulnerable and I think they're in a real tough spot. Like you, I can't see the chairman lasting the week. Um, just to offer up a bit of insight though, because often you say, oh, the BBC have got the comms dreadfully wrong. And so I'd just like to spare a thought and give a bit of insight really for the frontline people who are having to go out and defend, effectively sell this sort of nonsense. So my old colleague Ian Christon at Manchester Met University had a really good post over the weekend that made me think, so we worked together, Ian and I at the time, for Manchester Met University during COVID. Um, it's a large, complex organisation with different moving parts. And I've been thinking about how it's possible to get comms very badly wrong and how that hop- how that happens. And then obviously up pops Ian with some very smart observations. He said, what people forget is that comms people are advisors and it's the senior leaders who can choose whether to take that advice or not. And I, I can't for the life of me believe that any serious comms person would have advised the BBC to put out the messages as they did. But there was one in particular that Gary Lineker has decided to step back. No, he hasn't. The BBC pushed him out. I don't think he he did any stepping back voluntarily. Um, They were responding to media questions about whether he was going to be disciplined. They would have said, don't be stupid. And yet they appear to have been as shocked by the rest of us by the uh, response to the decisions over the weekend. Their paymasters, the bosses of the BBC, are ultimately responsible for how they dispatch people to the front line of delivering comms like this. And they've just been sent out to polish a turd. 
Yeah, um, I, it's always making the distinction as well. I think that um, BBC News accounts for about 3% of the BBC's output, but they probably attract 97% of the complaints uh, that the BBC gets. So in, in, in the main, the BBC do a wonderful job. You know, we've been waxing lyrical about Happy Valleys in recent episodes of the podcast. They do a wonderful job. They've got problems, though, and, and the business with Richard Sharp being the chairman is it, it just smacks of hypocrisy. That's why he'll go. It smells. Um, they've also got this problem where freelance members of staff are treated differently to to and you would expect them to be treated differently to say political journalists um we've spoken about the inconsistency around andrew neil etc etc there's a couple of things i want to mention as well in terms of why it's been a bad week for the bbc so the bbc have been reported uh, or it's been reported the bbc uh, won't be broadcasting an episode of sir david attenborough's new series on bbc wildlife for fear of a backlash from tory politicians yeah, this is they've something de- they've denied that haven't they I haven't got to the bottom of it. I read the story in The Guardian on Saturday, and apologies for being a metropolitan liberal elite. But No, I mean, Alistair Campbell's been quite vocal about it. Also, it's uh, the BBC's decision to get rid of their, their singing choirs as well. Um, on a separate incident, the BBC has apologised for not challenging claims that Dean Doris made on BBC's Radio 4 last week about the closeness of Sue Gray's relationship uh, with Keir Starmer. I mean, she was basically spouting off that they were like buzz and buddies and nobody challenged it, and the BBC apologised. That is a big issue, that is, because if the if the BBC and journalists and the media generally don't challenge the claims of politicians, especially people like Nadine Doris, who've got massive personal interests, then all credibility is gone. Yeah, I think it's good that the BBC journalists are kept on their toes. I thought Laura Koonsberg was on good behaviour at the weekend. I think... I think she had the possibilities of a censure. I, th- I think she was treading on eggshells a bit around her interviews, both with Jeremy Hunt and Rachel Reeves. It was quite interesting to watch the, the dynamics and the body language in the room with, with all of that going on. But, you know, I, the whole thing about Sue Gray and the chief of staff stuff, I know you want to talk about that, don't you? Mm. And, um, and, and when you, you think there's questions to be answered, presumably, about whether Sue Gray needs to be more transparent about when she first started communicating with Keir Starmer about that job. I don't think it's quite the gotcha that the Tories hope it's going to be. I think they're more worried that Labour's looking more and more serious by the day. I think it's. I think what is important is that the timing... I, I think Sue Gray's appointment is a wonderful appointment for, for Labour. But clearly, you know, bearing in mind she carried out the investigation into Boris Johnson um, and now she's moving to the Labour, it doesn't look good. So the optics are important. So we just need transparency. But we need transparency across politics generally. What I will do as well is that we've been quite quick on this podcast to criticise people who we think are letting the side down. Um, I want to give a little bit of credit to um, uh, Labour MP, uh, sorry, so Labour MP, Middlesbrough MP, um, Simon Seven Weeks Clark, who was the uh, levelling up secretary for seven weeks. I thought he gave a much more measured interview on Laura Coonsberg on Sunday about Lineker and the challenges facing the BBC. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't bracket him into the quote unquote thick right that we sometimes no. talk about. No, that's fair enough. Um, I think he had far fewer answers to Peter Salmon, who was also on the show, former managing director of the BBC, who oversaw the move from uh, London of th- thousands of people up to Salford Quays. And, and Nadia Witto, the youngest MP in the House of Commons, uh, Labour MP from Nottinghamshire. Uh, I don't think he had answers to some of, the, some of their analyses. But yeah, it, he's not playing to the mob in the same way. I think he realised he was in a room full of grown-ups. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And he finds it a lot easier on Twitter to yeah. to maybe drop his standards. Um, Peter Salmon, of course, married to the wonderful Sarah Lancashire, the actress. Yeah, go on. Anyway, it's it's hard to hear, but vital to what we... You know, go on. 
Yeah, you yeah. want to talk about PMQs, don't you? I do, but before I do, actually, um, I've got this view, incidentally, what's the point of PMQs? I listen to it every Wednesday, and I just think the quality debate is dropping uh, exponentially. It's horrendous. But I do want to praise Labour MP Jess Phillips. This isn't part of political. It never is. It, it shouldn't be. Uh, she took more than five minutes to read a list of women last week killed over the last 12 months where the perpetrator or suspect was a man. Hugely powerful. Yeah, it's really hard to hear that stuff, isn't it? And I think I've said before, I'm a huge admirer of Jess Phillips. I think she is just the sort of person politics needs. She really advocates for women and uh, and she's a fantastic constituency MP and I've got all the time in the world for her. Her books, by the way, I, I really recommend that you should read them with your interest in your growing interest in politics. No, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, you know, well done to Jess Phillips as well, and uh, and uh, a, a wonderful, a wonderful, albeit a very difficult listen uh, of a speech. Now, but yeah, what is it you wanted to say about well, PMQs more generally? I listened to PMQs and I watched it uh, last week. Um, now, PMQs has always been theatre. It's always been a bit of a bear pit. Ultimately, I checked the definition of why we have PMQs for. It's supposed to be an opportunity to hold the PM to account. It's supposed to last forty minutes. It lasts a bit longer than that, but it's just become and. Uh, you know, I think um, Boris Johnson was the worst, the worst exponent of it. It's just become 30 or 40 minutes of really tired, hackneyed insults and some desperate, desperate points going. However, I listened to it on Wednesday and I want to share two of the world-changing contributions. You of, watched it so we don't have to. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to share two of the world-changing contributions of two Northern Conservative MPs to the debate. When the people, when our listeners, our growing audience listeners to the Northern Green Podcast ask what we do or wait all, all, all that week, I'm listening <laughs> so that you don't have to go through this drudgery. So Chris Clarkson, MP for Haywood and Middleton, he's got a majority of 663 votes only. He used the question on International Women's Day, which is a fair point, to ask the Prime Minister to pay tribute to his mum up in the public gallery. I mean, you couldn't make her up. <laughs> and he got a big laugh as well. Yeah, he said there were two. Who was there was, well, the other one was Grimsby MP, um, Leah Nietzsche. She asked the Prime Minister to uh, congratulate Grimsby Town ahead of their FA Cup game with Brighton and Hove Albion at the weekend after they beat Sunak's own team, Southampton, in the last round. Sunak, who doesn't do humour very well, said he's now got a new team to support. They even shared a picture afterwards with uh, the two of them together and uh, Rishi Sunak was wearing his Southampton outfit. <laughs> and I just think to myself, I think, you know what, we've got two conversations in, in uh, PM cues we've got the stuff where they don't answer the questions and then we've got this stuff that nobody really cares about what's the point yeah it's a, it's a joke isn't it yeah incidentally um elsie blundell who's been selected as labor's candidate in haywood and middleton you know i said on this podcast that i very publicly wasn't going to be supporting her i sort of was in a way but i didn't do anything to support her because i've cursed three others i wrote to her just to clarify this because i do know her and said and she laughed and then uh, I said, I have supported three women who were unsuccessful against bang average blokes. And she wrote back very quickly and I suddenly realised she's really good mates with one of those yeah. bang average blokes yeah. who I was slagging off. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was a bit of a, a wince moment. I, I stand by it, though. I still think the, the, the three women that I supported were amazing. Yeah, yeah, I don't think Chris Clarkson will be there. And man. I think Elsie Blundell will make a, an amazing MP. Yeah, watch this base, watch this base. 663 votes, Chris. Yeah. She's coming for you. No, I, I agree. I mean, just just a personal thing. I, I uh, emailed Chris Clarkson to try and meet him when I was doing some work in Rochdale. I never got a reply. And I only judge people on on how I find them. So, uh, yeah, I think she's got um, I think she's got every yeah, chance. Yeah, you do that, don't you? No, I do. No, I generally do. I generally do. And with that... Let's go for a break. Well, 
welcome everybody uh, one to part two of the Northern Spring podcast. And Michael, um, we move at great pace here. In the first part of the show, we spoke about Gary Lineker and what was going on. And it's just emerged that he's now going to get back on Match of the Day. Now, 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 some people might say that actually we recorded the show, but it's not gone live yet. And the fact that he's now being readmitted back onto the Match of the Day fold is coincidental and nothing to do with us. You would disagree, though. <laughs> Not at all. It's all down to us. No, all down to us. No, I'm really pleased. I'm really pleased. So this is part two of Northern Spin. So a little bit of a plug for our sponsors now. I've interviewed thousands of CEOs, MDs, and all the rest of it, and they all need a really good personal assistant for their business or organization. And who should they turn to? They should turn to Lily Shippen as well. They're a specialist recruitment agency for HR and business support staff. Bases in Manchester and London, Lily Shippen recruit for a a wide range of roles, including executive assistants, personal assistants, office managers, receptionists, HR business partners, and many more. They don't just know how to recruit, uh, uh, but they know when to recruit as well. So if you're an MD, CEO, or business leader in the North or anywhere, remember the name Lily Shippen. And uh, just to flag up as well, Emma um, Hubert, who is a consultant at Lily Shippen, has written a really interesting piece in business cloud entitled could technology kill off executive assistance as well that's well worth a read yeah in a minute we're going to be discussing on maneuvers but there are a number of regional stories we need to discuss first where are we starting chris yeah this is where we sort of rattle through what's been going on across the north and just get an opinion on it and we're going to start with high speed 2 after the department of transport confirmed that high speed 2 phase 2a that's a bit between birmingham and crew had been delayed by another two years for cost reasons i was looking at uh, the various stretches and uh, the bit between crew and is not going to be not going to arrive until I'm 69 in 2041. Um, I mean, the thin end of the wedge for the north. What do you think? Yeah, it's uh, it's making HS2 very very difficult to love, isn't it? So I've always been slightly torn on HS2. I was convinced on its need by both Howard Bernstein and Richard Lease, the former chief executive and leader of Manchester City Council, who were very very fearsome in their support for it. Howard, in particular, spoke about the connections to Europe and how Manchester, you get a train from Manchester to Paris or Brussels or Amsterdam. And I'm thinking, yeah, that makes sense. It connects us, it bypasses London, all the rest of it. Then its terminus was named as Euston, not St Pancras. So suddenly that that argument's blown out of the water. So no trains to Paris after all. Then I saw it as a bit of a wake-up call for the North, that we're a secondary economy to London. And if Birmingham is too, then it just makes it, even easier for people to commute from Manchester to London to do a day's work. And um, and that was kind of scuppered as well. I think, you know, it becomes a funnel that just goes one way. And I haven't, frankly, seen enough action on the Northern Powerhouse, despite everyone's best intentions to make the North a more thriving spot. So the more the government tinkers, trims, cuts, and changes the proposition, the less appealing and the less worthwhile it becomes. So suddenly it's not going to be even in Euston in the centre of London anymore. It's going to be at Old Oak Common next to Wormwood Scrubs Prison on the outskirts of West London. That's a joke. Cutting it off, cutting off the uh, Ashton Metrolink in uh, in the east of Manchester suddenly makes it a bit of a disruption and, and, and cutting off you know, the, the the east of our city region for a whole lot longer. That's ridiculous. And yet the government has no priority and no ambition to do very sim- much simpler projects such as Piccadilly station platforms 15 and 16, which would immeasurably improve um, throughput of trains at Piccadilly station. I want 
a high-speed link between Manchester, Sheffield and Leeds, connecting our cities in a much more meaningful way. It would make far greater sense and it would much more make a much better dig at, um, at connecting the cities of the north. I was the editor of Northwest Insider after you, and I remember having a front page uh, picture of High Speed Two and getting all excited about the fact High Speed Two, you know, going to transform the North. I left it's for the kids, uh, though, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, I left High Speed, uh, so I left Northwest Insider, say six, seven, eight years ago, and that's how little progress we've made. Um, moving the, the, on. The other thing, sorry, I forgot to uh, I forgot to mention this. If it's so critical to the economy of the North, why are they building it from the South first? It would have made much more much more sense to actually start tunnelling under Manchester, building at the airport, connecting the airport with Birmingham, connecting the cities of Manchester and Birmingham, rather than everything always being about London. You know Small the answer. Point. Small you know, point. You know, no, no, it's yeah. a fair point. You know the answer to that, though. Um, now we spoke last week about Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages that were leaked to the Daily Telegraph by uh, Isabel Oakenshot, uh, Oakshot, who uh, who has burned more sources than I've burned hot dinners. Well, you you spoke about it a lot. Absolutely, I did. Um, now, I don't think we've got a smoking gun revelation that uh, Oakshot, Oakshot hinted at. Oakshot, yeah. Yes. But the thing is, is that she did all these interviews and she spoke about the fact that hey, the best is yet to come. I mean, the Daily Telegraph are doing a really good job of holding on to it if they are because I don't see that huge story. What I found really depressing was there was one piece that came out. It's WhatsApp message hinting that the former health secretary, Matt Hancock, discussed withholding funding for a learning disability centre in the constituency of Bury North. Tory MP James Daly in a bid to pressure him not to rebel against the coronavirus restrictions. Now, just to be balanced, uh, Hancock's team have said that uh, what's being accused here never happened. That's a quote. I do find it incredibly distasteful, though, that, that good positive initiatives like that are, are become sacrificial lambs because uh, because the government wants you know their their politicians to vote with them. I find that depressing. Yeah. I'll tell you what it did do, though, Chris, and this is a, a point that Isabel Oakshot made on a podcast that I saw, interview that I saw her do, is it rather killed off the idea that this is some sinister government plot with Bill Gates to try and program us all with... Um, with uh, tracking devices, mm. or that the um, the coronavirus was um, invented in order to bring in draconian regulations to people's lives, it did rather kill off the conspiracy argument, didn't it? No, or maybe uh, this is all part of the conspiracy itself no, that, that, to that, deflect us. Maybe actually they really were. Maybe that's a conspiracy theory about conspiracy theories. <laughs> Let's have another conspiracy theory. Um, Graham Brady, ah. best known as a chairman of the powerful 1922 committee, he's probably fed up of doing all these elections for the next uh, Tory leader. Um, he's in charge of all the Tory backbenchers. Um, he's announced he won't be contesting his Ultraman Sale West seat at the next general election. Now, he could write a book on the letters of no confidence that he's received over the years from unhappy um, Tory backbenchers and various uh, over various Tory leaders. Um, he's been the MP since 1997. Anything to see here about his decision not to stand at the next general yeah, election? Yeah, I think because he's called Sir Graham Brady and he's the grandee and he's the chair of the 1922 committee, people assume that he's you know, he's like Ken Clark, the father of the house who retired from politics in his 80s. He's not, he's younger than me. He's a young man. He's in his mid-50s. I mean, I know a lot of sort of Tory blokes, <laughs> they tend to look older, don't they? Even William Rag, God bless him, looked about 60 when he was 25. But... Um, um, but yeah, he's on a chicken run, for Chris, because he's going to lose. He, he became the MP, I think. At a, he was in his twenties, twenty six, I yeah. think. So he's only been in, he's been the MP for like twenty five years. He's only he's only fifty one, fifty two, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's it's 
it's another example of that kind of changing demographic that actually the wealthy Tories of places like Altrincham, Hale and Bowden aren't sufficiently Tory enough to keep voting for them. There's a good friend of mine lives in, in Hale, very wealthy business owner, lives in a big house, nice cars, all the rest of it. He votes green. He votes green because he cares about the environment and the future for his children. And he's absolutely 100% a nailed on core Tory voter. When you went by what you normally decide what a Tory is, where in fact the Tory core vote is probably on some of the council estates around Timperley and stuff like that. It's, yeah. it's a really interesting change in demographic and um, and that kind of core Labour vote in, you know, in modern Altrincham, you know, the people who go and work in, the, work in high paid jobs in the public sector or in tech companies like the ones you write about are probably more inclined to vote Labour nowadays. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Very interesting. Very interesting. But but he's just one of a number of high profile conservative MPs who've said they're not going to stand at the next election. We could fill a election. podcast, couldn't we, with a list of their names? But anyway, sure. let me ask you a quick one. Theresa Grant, former chief executive of Trafford Council. See what I did there? Bit yeah, very good. Yeah. Um, she's now the interim chief executive of Liverpool City Council in special measures. She said too many staff are working from home and has told staff at Liverpool City Council to come into work at the Cunard building more regularly. Anything to see here? Absolutely. This isn't just about... Where, where do you stand on all of that? This isn't just about councils. This is about businesses generally. Mm. And I was uh, talking about this because when uh, COVID kicked in, I had all my events lined up for the year and they literally dropped in one week for the yeah. whole year. Um, and then I very quickly um, subscribed to uh, to Zoom and I did all my events over Zoom. And I thought about it. And I thought I've not done any of my roundtable discussions over Zoom now for probably six, seven months. People don't want to do them anymore. But the problem is, is what's happened is the genie's we've, we've out. We've come zoomed out, haven't we? Yeah, we absolutely i see what you did there michael before you tell me did you see what i did there chris um <laughs> the problem is is that a lot of people have got used to working from home um a lot of people over covid got dogs and such like i think the problem you've got and i've said this before and it's not just aimed at liverpool city council which has had its challenges um but 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 lots of people lots of young people are working from home they're not getting the same conversations you would over the water cooler they're not getting the same conversations with experienced members of staff if they've got an issue they can't talk to somebody and just turn to them and have that conversation I don't think we'll go back to a situation where people work five days a week. I think you'll get this hybrid working. And I think what Theresa Grant's doing is she's laying the work. As we've mentioned, she's she's interim chief exec. She's going to be replaced by a guy called Andrew Lewis. And I think she's laying the groundwork for him. I think local authorities, civil servants, people in the public sector, I think they've got a real pressure on them to return to work at least two, probably three days a week. I mean, What's your take on that, Michael? Yeah, I, I really, really hated that element of work during lockdown. I pride myself, you know, my, my whole job at the university was all about relationships, both with people in the in the local civic communities, in businesses, and I was kind of robbed of it. I was on constant Zoom calls. I didn't like it. Uh, I couldn't look up from my desk to see if someone was busy or not. I had to book a 15-minute Teams call with them to basically ask them a 30-second question. And I... And, and I think young people in particular that have missed out on a lot of that. Um, and yet we've accelerated lots of workplace trends. Hopefully one thing it's done is it's got rid of the pointless meetings. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think like I say, Theresa Grant, I've met her quite a few times. She's a straight talker as well. But, but Liverpool Council's under pressure. And I think it just doesn't do anybody any favours when they come in on a Monday and a Friday and it's like the Mary Celeste in the office. Um, the next part we're going to talk about and I'm going to put you on the spot now, is about uh, Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham. Now, now um, 
I was just checking to see if you've got an I Love Andy Burnham uh, badge on your jumper today because I'm going to put you. Yeah. I'm going. I'm going to put you on the spot about a few things. Um, uh, Andy, along with Greater Manchester Economy Lead Councillor Bev Craig, who's the leader of Manchester City Council, they're currently, I think, on a trade mission to the US. They were on last week. I don't know if they're still out. Yeah, there. no, they are. Yeah. I yeah. can talk you through the fine details of that tour if you yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, how important is that? Do you think? I think it's really important. So he's in Austin at the moment in Texas for the South by Southwest Music Convention, where New Order are headlining. You won't have heard of them, so I won't waste time <laughs> yeah. explaining. But he's discussing a really exciting new music festival for Greater Manchester and a conference being launched by Ollie Wilson, son of the late, great Tony Wilson here in Manchester. It also quite neatly gets him off the hook for not being at MIPIM in Cannes in the south of France, which always goes down really badly with the voters at home and journalists like me and you, no doubt, say how much things cost in Cannes and that they're all on some big leg. So, yeah, I think he's been at his best. Do you, do you think, we, we're about to start the on-manoeuvre section, do you think Andy Burnham's on-manoeuvres in terms of what he's up to at the moment? Uh, yeah, I do, in a way, but let me briefly qualify that. He's on-manoeuvres doing the things exactly that he should be doing as the Greater Manchester Mayor. So he's using this opportunity to really advocate for more devolution on behalf of the other mayors. Now, Andy writes a, uh, a column in the Evening Standard, which we'll come on to in a moment. Cultural industries and tech are really important. So there's a really obvious... Um, there's a really obvious uh, headline to be grabbed from that by launching this festival with New Order. He likes all those sorts of optics. He likes getting his casual clothes on and posing with pop stars, quite rightly. If, if I was him, I would want to do that as well. Now, the backdrop to his US visit this week also coincides with the budget. And I think we've said all that we said last week, didn't we, that lots of politicians are on manoeuvres around advocating for their portfolios to be highlighted, to get some money and to change the political conversation so they get funded in Jeremy Hunt's first budget. So this is a real mid-trip mid boost for his mission. And if the government confirms a positive outcome for the trailblazer devolution talks that Greater Manchester and the West Midlands are having with government, then he's going to chalk that off as a success. Now, he said in his column in the Evening Standard, which is a London paper, yeah. by the way, yeah. he said, we also want more influence over overseas trade promotions so that we can show that modern Britain is more than beef eaters and Big Ben. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's good. So he's not he's not on manoeuvres to get up the pecking order and up the greasy pole of Labour politicians most likely to challenge Keir Starmer. He's on manoeuvres to advocate for more devolution for cities like Manchester and the Birmingham city region. Uh, so gonna... good, and I'm really pleased. Can I just tell you a quick story? This, this, this is unverifiable and it's pure gossip, but he went to South by Southwest a few years ago, shortly after being elected mayor, and the ripple went round the convention that Greater Manchester had this really hot mayor. Yeah. So all these women were all, yeah. going, were all going up and he got this nickname. Have you seen Huddy Mayor yet? <laughs> Well, um, Andy For Burnham, American women of a certain age who love Andy. Uh, Andy will be disappointed actually that he uh, he missed Everton's latest win, another another one nil win at home. Yes, um, but I, I want to. So our on the code spot. for him, by the way, was HM. What we stands for? Hot mare. Hotty mare. Hot mare. It's the accent that does it for me, I'll be honest with you. Um, <laughs> I'm a big fan of Andy Burnham. I think he's a breath of fresh air for the North and for Manchester yeah. generally. Um, but I did dislike unofficial uh, focus group. I can, only, I can only say this again. You know, it does frustrate me. Frust it does frustrate me when I see all conversations about Andy 
spoke about through the prism of he's making a return to Westminster because I think he's a good mayor. I think he's been good for it. I literally wrote an academic thesis on it, that this is what the cities of the North need is powerful advocates, whether they're wearing North Face jackets or not. I'm putting you on the spot now and you've got to listen to me now. This is important. So I was speaking to a a couple of listeners last week and they enjoyed last week's podcast when they spoke about the fact that you spoke about what happened to your, well, one of your sons actually being a victim of an horrendous crime and um, you had a horrible experience at the hands of Greater Manchester Police. And this person said to me, they said, uh, well, you know, when you speak to Michael, tell him, why did he let Andy Burn Burnham off scot-free because Andy Burnham, of course, is responsible for the police budgets. You didn't mention Andy Burnham anywhere in your criticism last year, uh, last week, in terms of what happened to your son. Why was that? Um, yeah, no, it's a fair point. You know, if I'm going to advocate for him, I should do. Yeah, I think um, I did raise it with Bev Hughes at the time, the police and crime commissioner and deputy mayor, and I expressed my disappointment in her lack of interest in the case. Andy and Bev are not operationally responsible for my lad being mugged at knife point and letting a and and the cops in Stockport letting a, a bunch of gangs roam around with impunity. But they had on their watch the disgraceful excuses culture perpetuated by the previous chief constable, Ian Hopkins, who Andy Burnham sacked. Now, eventually, Hopkins was replaced by the new chief, Steve Watson, who has a very, very different set of priorities. And... And I think we've seen some action following that as a result. Um, Does that clear things up a little bit? Yeah, I think it's fair. I think it's fair. I think, incidentally, I think it's really important. And I really welcome it when uh, listeners hold us to account to what we've said. Yeah. Um, On manoeuvres. Yes. So let's go on to our section on manoeuvres. I've gone first. I think Andy Burnham, yeah, has been on manoeuvres in all the best possible interpretations of that this week. But it's the budget. Absolutely. Yeah. Just a reminder, of course, Nicola Headlam, we're going to do a special uh, podcast extra with her on Thursday. Looking forward to that. We're going to break down what's said on Wednesday. Everyone's jockeying for position. I think this is going to be the uh, you know getting back to work budget um, this uh, this this year. That's where I think all the effort's going to come. Um, education wasn't included in Rishi Sunak's five pledges. So what you're seeing at the moment is you're seeing a lot of jockeying between the Education Secretary Gillian Keegan, the Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Phillipson, who is the MP for Horton and uh, Sunderland North in the uh, northeast up there. They're both popping up all over the meet, uh, the media. The fiercest battleground is around affordable childcare. It's being discussed at every opportunity. Phillipson said that it will be her top priority if Labour get into government. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hump, did the rounds on Sunday. He said uh, he's pledged to cut the cost of childcare um, during Wednesday's budget. Are they on manoeuvres? What do you think? Well, I hope so, because I think Bridget Phillipson is one of the most gifted politicians of this present generation of Labour front benches. I think she's fantastic. I used to really enjoy her kind of attempts to reset social democracy and, and write really thoughtful pieces when she was a, a mere backbencher under the Jeremy Corbyn uh, era. I think she's brilliant. And I, I, there can be no more powerful advocate on the Labour benches for education than Bridget Phillipson. We've, uh, Rachel and I saw her speak at, um, at, at a conference last year and, um, and we, gave, we gave her the big thumbs up. I like... Gillian Keegan and Bridget Phillipson. Yeah, I like Gillian Keegan as far as Tories go. Yeah, yeah. Originally from Knowsley as well. So she comes across as a real person. Yeah, but the education system in this country is in a mess. 100%. 100%. So someone needs to address it. Anyone else on manoeuvres, Chris? Yeah, I'm going, uh, going away from uh, politics, going down the route of business. So Matthew Moulding might, might not be familiar, a name familiar to everybody. It's He's familiar f- to me. Do you know why? Because Rachel, my wife, went to school with him. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I would like to find out. Maybe we'll bring Rachel if you want to come on the show and spill the beans on Matthew Moulding. <laughs> It'd be won't. nice if somebody she, would come she, on she the won't, show. By the way, okay. So yeah. uh, Matthew Moulding's a founder and CEO of THG. She also went to school with Michael Taylor's wife. Um, THG, incidentally, formerly known as the Hut Group. Now, by way of background, THG joined the London Stock Exchange in a London grabbing uh, IPO, um, you know, a public offering in 2020. It's fair to say that THG and Moulding in particular have had an almighty kicking off investors and some sections of the media ever since. Now, the problem is Moulding has offered nothing in return. I use the analogy. It's like playing a game of tennis and not holding a racket. Um, that was a problem. Moulding was firing no balls back across the net when he was getting all this stick from investors and uh, and from the media. And what would happen is he would get lampooned because he posted some pictures of himself on Instagram of his ripped body. And uh, I mean, he's only three months older than me and I have to say his body's in far better shape than mine I think half the reasons uh, I think half the, I think half the reason investors had a go at him because they were jealous of his uh, of his six pack anyway Moulding's hit back and he's hit back on LinkedIn I'm a huge fan of LinkedIn you use LinkedIn really well as well I think it's a really really good move three or four weeks ago he wrote this fascinating blog about his mum known as Mama Moulding who had been mocked he said by some men, uh, some sections of the business media for emailing a journalist to ask if they had anything else of interest to write about now matt molding wrote i asked her that's his mum why she did it her exact words aren't appropriate for linkedin but it's safe to say she was incredibly frustrated that nobody was speaking out setting uh, seeing things affect my family like this meant that i had to take i had to make a change and speak up since then what molding's done he's written a series of linkedin blogs he's spoken about everything from his coffee consumption and how that was bad for his health staff promotions adhd uh, apprentices uh, international women's day he links it very intelligently back to thg now, if I'd been advising Matt Moulding, and I haven't, I would have said to have done exactly what he's done. I think it is so important that people in the public eye pit their side of the story forward and also just give us an insight into them as well. What do you think? Yeah, yes and no. I think he does genuinely run the risk of upsetting his shareholders who have seen a massive collapse in value. And of course, a lot of shareholders have been members of his of staff who were awarded shares and they've seen that the value of those shares that have been awarded diminish over time. I think he should concentrate on his business, doing something about the horrendous turnover of staff, which must be a real burden operationally. And I also don't I don't like this tech bro culture where tech chief executives seem to think that people care about their lives. Yeah, I think it's the same sort of nonsense that Steve Bartlett's given us, that it creates an entirely false impression. And, uh, and I'm very uncomfortable with it. No, that's a fair point. And on that note, let's go to our, uh, our final break. Welcome back to the third and final part of this episode of Northern Spin. Now, I was looking at Twitter over the uh, the weekend. I noticed that you've been in Liverpool. So what have you been up to uh, on the work and the home front? Yeah, we're over in Liverpool. Um, really good. So I was on the guest list for the launch of the Art of the Terraces exhibition at the Walker Art Gallery back in November. And I didn't go. And I kept thinking every time I'll, I'll nip into Liverpool, I'll do a meeting and I'll nip over to see the exhibition. And I never did. And then I was reminded by our mate Andrew Groves, Professor Andrew Groves, to give him his full title, who reminded me on Instagram that the exhibition ended on Sunday. So Rachel and I headed over. And I tell you what, I really, really enjoyed it. It was a real celebration of an important social movement that has proved more enduring than anyone ever realised. The art of... Um, 
wearing smart gear to football matches. Who would have thought that became a, a cultural phenomenon? But it was a huge part of my cultural hinterland. And then on a similar note, I reported last week on the business desk a story that I've been chasing for a while, that JD Sports are to close a Manchester institution, a menswear store in the Northern Quarter called Oi Polloi, where I've spent far too much money over the years. It's been a real destination for me. And, and I've really got to know the, the former owners who sold out to JD, um, Nigel and Steve. And, you know, happily, they kind of left it alone. But then now they've announced that they're going to turn it into the, one of their own bland, branded stores just at the same time as they've hived off Scott's and Tasuti, two other uh, um, clothing stores, to Mike Ashley's Fraser's Group. It's a really sad time. And I even had a one-off, Chris, something I've never done before. I added a quote to a news story this week from none other than Liam Gallagher, who this week tweeted on the news that Oipoloi was to close. No, there is no God, FFS. So upset was he by the disappearance of Oipoloi. Now, do I have to describe who Liam Gallagher is? No, you don't. No, oh, I know okay. I know who Liam Gallagher is. I know his brother as well, personal friend of mine. It's um, Which it's, one, Paul or Noel? It's uh, well, I was a fan of Noel. Okay. I always thought Noel was, uh, but but Liam's got the edge. Um, it, you also got another brother called Paul. Younger, a, is he younger or older? I can't, older, I think. Who did, a, who did a book with Terry Christian, which was remarkably bitter. He spent his life being described as Noel and, uh, you know, Liam's brother. Um, yeah. Been a busy week. Been a busy week for for me. Uh, been yeah, a busy yeah, weekend for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, something we've both been involved in. Today's Monday and, uh, you know, I'm the executive editor of Business Cloud. Tech Blast, you're the executive editor of Business Desk. We've both led with the same story, which is the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, I, I, um, I, I was uh, on Friday, I spotted the story, actually. And, and just by way of background, the reason it's really important especially to us because, you know, our bread and butter is tech. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank in the US, basically, uh, they uh, they ran into big major problems. Silicon Valley Bank UK was seen as a separate entity, but it, it wasn't really. Where they, the space that they sort of swim in is the tech sector. They work with startups. Um, so it has huge implications uh, all over the weekend. We've done a couple of stories over the weekend, done a piece today. They've been bought today by HSBC. I read for a pound. Yeah, but obviously HSBC have taken on all their liabilities and secured all their deposits that people have made in the bank and presumably taken on the loan book as well. So, yeah, it's good. And, you know, lots of people in the tech sector, to be fair, and this is a politics podcast, have really praised the uh, the work that Jeremy Hunt's done. Yeah, yeah so credit yeah. where it's due. It, you know, it comes back to this point again, doesn't it, that it seems like there are at least grown-ups in charge trying to clear up the mess um, that the Tories have left this country in. Yeah, I, I looked at his interview that he did with uh, Sophie Ridge and he was asked a question and yeah. uh, he just he just is all over everything, but he does it in such a measured way. Um, now, I'm going to lighten the mood, Michael, because this is the section of the podcast where we try and uh, uh, we try and lighten the mood and make people smile. I'm going to uh, talk about something close to your heart, not the Labour Party. I'm going to talk about music. Oh, okay. Go on. Okay. Now, I'm going to read the first two lines of a song and I want you to see if you can identify who this singer is, okay, okay. or what eyes. the song is relevant to. Do you remember um, um, Name That Tune with Lionel Blair? Yes, I do. It's a bit like that. Okay, yeah, go now, on, go I on. don't profess to have a great voice, everybody, so you're going to have to bear with me on this one. Okay, but I'm going to go for it. Okay. It plugs at the ready uh, okay. crew. Oh, yeah. Oh, when you said you were leaving to work on your mental health. 
Ah, yes, that's the start of the UK's entries of this year's Eurovision Song Contest <laughs> by May Muller with her song, I Wrote That Song. I Wrote Our Song. Yeah. Do you not think, though, the fact it's that... It's a bit that Ariana Grande, we decided, when we were playing it before. Well, the fact that the second line is to work on your mental health. I mean, if ever there was a story or a song for the ages, that's it. Um, You're about as easy as a nuclear war. Who's that one? Duran Duran. Oh, right, okay. Well, as you know, I'm not much of a music person. Um, <laughs> well, I was with Alex Can on Friday, the hardest working man in commercial radio, broadcasting right across the north from Southport to Scunthorpe. I love man to, the, to Halifax. He reckons he's got a chance. And uh, as long as uh, you're not singing it, Maybe we have. No, I can sing the whole version if anybody wants me to. Just, uh, you know, uh, email us or send us a message on uh, Twitter. The point I'm making is actually I'm really excited about it. I saw the prices for the um, the tickets and I thought, there's no way I'm going to spend 130 quid to watch that. I wouldn't have got a ticket anyway. What I would say is given the fact that uh, he's coming home, Gary Lineker, so the slot that we were hoping to get on match today is no longer there. In the unlikely event that Graham Norton does pull out of the Eurovision Song Contest, I am available and uh, and I'll be very happy to do that for a... Uh, a competitive price. Have you got any um, TV and film recommendations? It's interesting because although this is a political podcast, people always say to me, I know they've listened to the end of the podcast when they say, I can't believe you've taken 13 years listening to Downton Abbey, which I'm getting onto. But have you uh, watched anything of a note? this last Yes, week? I have. And this is a special one for our producer, Ellis. I watched the feature length uh, Luther on Netflix, which was very, very dark, very odd. Brilliantly acted, especially by Idris Elba and the villain in it, Andy Serkis, who yeah. you might know, who played Gollum in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It was, but basically it was a pitch showreel for Idris Elba to get the James Bond role, in my view. If there's an actor you could be, for me, I'd be Idris Elba, because I think he is... He's too school. He's too, you know, too, cool, too for cool, cool for school. Yeah, yeah he's great. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. love him. Um, now, for the first time in five weeks, I've not been to the cinema. Me and Mrs. M decided we've had some bad experiences recently. We couldn't see anything we wanted to watch. So we, uh, so I looked at, I took your advice. I thought, I watched this succession because you've been raging about it, you know. Um, it's but, just the best thing ever. Yeah, but, but but I don't have Sky TV, unfortunately. And I, 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 I could get it on Prime. 2.49 an episode. My dad would say, how much? <laughs> so uh, I've not watched that yet, but I have watched season five of Unforgotten on ITVX. Okay. What's um, it like without Nicola Walker? Because she died at the end of yeah, the Yeah, she did. Yeah, yeah. Series, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Yeah, season four, she died. It took the first episode was a really difficult episode, but what they did really well is the rest of the cast are, are in it. Right. And actually what they made out is the first episode was actually we're struggling to come to terms with the death of the boss. Um, yeah. And the person that they brought in was the antithesis of her. But mm. now I'm on episode five or six of a six-parter. It's really, really good. Um, and I'd recommend it as well. Okay. Well, uh, that's all for episode five of season of episode five of season three of the Northern Spin podcast. Episode six will follow this week after the budget with Nicola Headlam live in the studio. Um, she's fantastic, isn't she? I can't wait she, for that. That was our second most listened to podcast we've ever done. Brilliant. And people really liked it who, who, and gave the great reviews, didn't they? Mm. Anyway, we're also on Apple Podcasts. Please review us if you can. Don't forget to press the subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter at northern underscore spin one or watch us on YouTube. Thank you, as ever, to What Media for recording this podcast, to our sponsors, Oscar Technology and Lily Shippen, and to Elliot Taylor for providing the music, New Beginnings. My name is Michael Taylor. My name is Chris McGuire. Wishing Joe Shippen a happy birthday as well. Thank you very much. More than just a podcast. <laughs>